We interrupt this program to bring you the utility players classified results. Arsenal 1, Brighton Hove Albion 2, Red Bull Leipzig 0, Borussia Dortmund 2, Werner Bremen 1, Mates 3, Adelaide Crows 29, Gold Coast Suns 82, Brisbane Broncos 8, Newcastle Knights 27, Rory McIlroy 11 under par, Tied 41st. Hello, we are the Utility Players, I'm Ali, and I'm Rory, and welcome to our world of sport. And here we are, episode three of the Utility Players podcast. Our guests keep on rolling. This week, we're very excited to be joined by White Ferns uh, former captain and cricketing star, Amy Satherswaite. We'll be speaking to her later about all things returning to cricket and what's going on around the world uh, in the women's game. But before we get into that and other things that have gone on this week, we have our first classified results, whitewash, full house, sweep, Rory. Unfortunately, not the way we wanted to come about. <laughs> no, not at all. Our classified results were certainly pretty diabolical this week, and maybe representative of how our supporting following has gone over the past few years, where our team is not doing particularly well. Um, yes, was there any of them that... That, that, that stood out. It's certainly one that stood out to me, but it's only one that stood out to you. And probably what I should say is, it's lucky that we didn't delve further back into the week because a, a lot of the, our teams may have played multiple games this week. But if we'd gone back to midweek fixtures as well as weekend fixtures, it would have just got even worse. <laughs> yes, quite. It was just from start to finish, the week wasn't very good. I mean, for me, the Arsenal result has to be the one that stood out only because. We've waited so long for the Premier League to return and it was like this big return to football and there was all this excitement, like, will it be different? Will the young players have come through? Players like Kieran Tierney were back from injury and it was all looking fantastic and then it just fell apart on the pitch in the, the both games that we saw over the weekend. Yeah, I think uh, obviously the big talking point that came out of, of Saturday's game against Bournemouth, uh, sorry, Brighton, sorry, was... Um, was a very unfortunate injury to, to Bert Leno. Uh, you know, we wish him a, a very speedy recovery. It's, it's horrible. I can't bring myself to watch the replays yeah. when they do show injuries like that. But, you know, it was almost written in the stars that the player involved with an injury was going to score the late winner and, and there were some not very pleasant scenes at the end of the game. Yeah, I mean, the Arsenal players certainly didn't take favourably to him. Which you can get. They're trying to stick up for their player. They feel like they, he left one on Leno and that causes injury. But at the same time, maybe a little bit more humility when um, you have conceded in that fashion. Well, I think the ironic bit about the whole thing was at the end of the game with his interview. He obviously, you know, apologised as as it was just good to see. The strength of that apology, to my mind, could be questioned. Because if he really was sorry, you know, when you're on a field of sports and you see an injury happen, a bad injury, people know straight away. Uh, I know football... You know, we all hate the rolling around and the theatrics that come with it. But anyone watch that, you could see straight away that that Bert Leno was was in a serious bit of pain, and and it, and it wasn't it wasn't anything you know theatrical about it. The reaction of the Brighton forward, and his name escapes me right now, was to appeal for Bert Leno to have taken the ball out of the box. So 
he had clearly wasn't sorry. He clearly wasn't bothered that he'd uh, because all he cared about was was gaining that advantage and trying to get a free kick. So his mentality going into that, and, and anyone who listened to Rio Ferdinand's comments after the game, yes, it's a contact sport, but for me, going and deliberately colliding with a goalkeeper, and I normally won for for, for protect, not protecting goalkeepers. I think they get away with a lot, but in a circumstance like that, where he was, no matter what he says, never going to win the ball. The ball was clearly in the goalkeeper's hands and he wanted to barge into a player who was in the air with his arms above his head holding onto a ball. Yes, he didn't expect to injure him. Yes, there was no malice there. But this is exactly why in games like rugby and in American football, why there are severe penalties for taking out someone in the air when their hands are on the ball because they have no way of providing leverage to control their body in the air because they can't spread their arms wide, give themselves balance in the air to bring themselves back to to ground in in a safe manner. So, yes, okay, freak accident. Yes, there was no malice. Yes, he did not mean to injure him. I'm not suddenly saying he should have been sent off or should have been a red card or anything was, you know, in the actual game, a foul was given. But it's the manner of which even if it's an accidental causing of the injury, his attitude immediately afterwards of not caring about the well-being of the player involved, but caring about getting a free kick for having deliberately tried to knock him out the box with the ball in his hand. Yeah, for sure. I think looking back on it, it seemed very obvious to me that I didn't at the time, but when I look back at it and think about it now, he saw Leno go up to claim the ball towards the end of his area and he thought, if I give him a nudge here, he might well fall off balance, stumble out the box and we'll get a free kick or equally drop the ball and then give me a position's chance to steal it. And then that's why he was then so quick to appeal when Leno did go out the box. And I mean, that is fine. Like, I think a lot of us would do in that situation, see if you can give him a nudge, see if you can gain an advantage for your team. But then, as you said, there was no kind of immediate like remorse when he saw how badly he was injured it was only kind of after the game that he kind of suggested there was some sort of kind of apology there uh and you know i say we, we wish Bert leno all the best yeah and uh my adelaide crows once again <laughs> uh, i i i couldn't i didn't i didn't watch it this time i, I think the, the time difference it started about half four in the morning but um but got less points, scored less points this week, but conceded less. So still, still losing by about an aggregate of fifty points. Uh, as I said, it's a it's a rebuild. Yeah. Uh, hope that rebuild happens sooner rather than later. But it, it was another tough slog for for the for the crows this week. I think we should get that on a t shirt or something. It's a rebuild, <laughs> <laughs> and it can just be the, your slogan until the crows start winning again. Exactly. Well, hope I say hope for that sooner rather than later. Uh, right. In a sort of wider getting away from our teams, something that sort of came across my radar this week in sport was around tennis and the US Open. And um, the US Tennis Association announced this week that the US Open will be going ahead in in a couple of months' time uh, in August over at Flushing Meadows. And there was certainly a, a mixed response to this. And it's really intrigued me about what what, what you think, Rory, on on if this is the right move. So around the world, we're seeing sport coming back. We're seeing domestic sport coming back. We've seen that in, in, in football and in rugby, even golf. You know, it's, it's the US tour. And, uh, and this is one of the first moves we are seeing towards having a more global involvement in a sport and people having to fly in for, for a one-off tournament. Uh, we've seen it, we've seen it in cricket a little bit. The West Indies have flown over to England to play in, in Test match starting next month. 
But again, that's just two teams. That's just one team flying in. And it's really intriguing to me seeing the comments of the players. Djokovic is very uncertain. Nadal is very uncertain. There was an article that came out saying that when the, the Tennis Association put a plan in place to, to the male players, that the three players who weren't on the call were Nadal, Djokovic and Federer. So again, that's not a great sign. Uh, Federer is injured anyway, so his, his inclusion wasn't going to be the case as it happens. But when you've got the three best players in the world concerned about traveling internationally, concerned about what COVID-19 is doing across the planet, do you suddenly have to start thinking whether this is the right move? On the flip side, in the women's game, we've seen Serena wholeheartedly supporting it. A little bit different for her, obviously being a US citizen. Uh, But the the women's world number two, um, Simone Hallett, she said she's not comfortable traveling at the moment as things stand. Now, yes, it's a couple of months away. But to me, it's really concerning that they haven't really factored in what the players' input and thoughts are about this. Because all of a sudden, if it becomes some people willing to travel, some people aren't willing to travel, does it become a US Open? Does it become a Grand Slam? Does the winner eventually, if the top players in the world aren't available because they're not willing to travel, have to have that dreaded asterisk beside their name? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. and I mean, I think the thing with the return to sport in COVID right now is it works or can be effective if everyone is based within the same geographical location or same country. And I said, you've mentioned the West Indies are coming in and that has been a big move. Again, it's one team of people who can all kind of isolate together, lock down together, stay together when trying to control a massive bunch of individuals is much more difficult. We've seen that with the Gulf, even in America, when they're all living in America and they're all in that geographical location. We've had cases of COVID breakout on the PGA Tour this week. So it just it seems extremely unfeasible for me that they're going to get players from around the world to fly in safely and in enough numbers to make the tournament worthwhile because it's a, it's a major there's no point in playing a major championship in any sport if you aren't going to have the caliber of players to make it worthwhile playing. Because why, if you have a major and half the top 20, top 30 players in the world aren't there, the credibility of it just must surely go out the window because it's not going to be the same spectacle and it's not going to be the same achievement to win because you aren't having to get past Djokovic, Nadal, Federer to get into the final and to win the tournament. Yeah, I think the thing is as well is that we all want sport to resume, and at some point there has to be almost a calculated risk of, of like, like in all aspects of, of society, about returning to past COVID-19. But you, you look at golf. Golf's probably, in terms of the way it's structured, the most similar to tennis, in that you've got your, your tours, and then you've got your majors. You know, so similar, similarly in tennis, you've got your ATP and your WTP you know, tours that run all year round and then you've got Wimbledon or Masters or whatever else so what you're seeing in golf is a return first and foremost to the US tour and a European tour is more complex a little bit further behind that's a different conversation but they're returning to the 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 bottom line first and foremost which is getting the tours up and running and and then on the back of that they can then you know move towards having the majors for me to go straight into one of these majors seems to be a bit flawed. And and on your point, Roy, so since the question for you, since 2010, how many players in the men's game do you think have won one of the majors outside of the top three we just talked about and Andy Murray? 
If it's two, I'd be surprised. So there has been two. Yeah. Okay, so there's been two. So Stan Wawrinka has won has won three. Marin Cilic won the US Open back in 2014. So there's only been four majors out of the 40 available in the men's game that has not been won by the top three and Andy Murray. And we all, we all know about his injuries. So if those top three in the men's game don't play and someone comes along and win it, for me, you cannot claim to be a major winner. And it'd be different if these players were all injured. Say they'd all picked up an injury at the same time. That's part and parcel of sport. You pick up injuries, you miss tournaments. As Federer have done, as Andy Murray has had over the last couple of years. That That is different. But having them uncomfortable from a global health position, not willing to be involved and still go ahead, that is a different kettle of fish. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think that it will just lose the credibility of the tournament and actually, as I said, make it not worthwhile. I think it's an interesting point going straight into majors. It's actually much harder and it probably even made harder that they've cancelled the tour event this week because one of the players contracted coronavirus. Yeah, so, so there was yeah, so it was, there was a um, there was a sort of exhibition tour uh, tournament. Um, there's been a couple of them that popped up and the two finalists, Gregor Dimitriov and uh, Borang Kotek, if I've said them right, <laughs> um, the final couldn't go ahead. So be- because one of them had contracted coronavirus. And so therefore, we, we, you know, we've seen this pop up around the world. So as you mentioned, uh, Nick Watley in golf this week over at Harbour Town in the PGA Tour, he he had to pull out. Uh, luckily, he didn't pass on to any other anyone else involved in that bubble. Uh, you had uh, Conor, McMahon, Conor McMahon, who was uh, an AFL player playing for Essendon. Uh, he he contracted it, so the Essendon versus Melbourne game has had to be postponed and rescheduled. Um, in American football, we've had players from the Cowboys and the Texans and the 49ers test positive. You know, luckily everyone is is asymptomatic and 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 there hasn't been any serious illnesses out of it. But COVID nineteen is not going to play in the timeline of of what sports want, mm-hmm. and the comfort of of the people who are going to be exposed needs to be taken into consideration. Yeah, I, I think as well, there's also a moral aspect to it. At the end of the day, we are all still here trying to fight this disease, and we're all doing what we can to try and eradicate it from our society so we can go back to normal and we can enjoy the things we like to enjoy again. So promoting events that are going to potentially not eradicate the disease and keep it in within society and therefore cause more harm to more people and also cause the disease to exist longer, is it just doesn't seem to make any sense. And in, in different matters altogether, the Premier League is back, as we, as we alluded to. We had our fir- the first game back was an exciting nil-nil draw between uh, Aston Villa and Sheffield United. But, you know, a bit of tongue-in-cheek when I said exciting nil draw. There was certainly an exciting moment in that game. We had our first failing in goal line technology, where in the 41st minute, for all money, it looked like Norwood, the Sheffield United midfielder, had scored a free kick over the line, taken over by the goalkeeper, the Villa goalkeeper, only for the technology not to work and the, and the watch on the referee's arm to say it wasn't a goal. <laughs> it was, this was crazy. I mean, for all money, the ball was over line. The keeper had literally trapped the ball behind the goalpost in a position where it couldn't have got there without being over the line. And to be fair, I do not blame the referee in this at all. And I think a lot, not many people are because the ref doesn't have the best view of it from his position. He has been trained to trust the technology, which to be fair, we're 
talked a lot about VAR and that not working, but to be fair, goal line technology and the Hawker technology is there has been very good in football and has worked very successfully. So you can't blame the referee for trusting on this occasion when he didn't have any reason to do so otherwise. So it just was bizarre how the technology just failed. And I guess this is maybe part and parcel with technology. It isn't going to work 100% of the time. And we do need to accept that one in however often the goal line technology won't work. But it was it was just bizarre. Well, you've, you've mentioned the dreaded VAR. Now, we are all a bit sick to death of VAR and talking about it. But I think it's only right that, that it's something we need to touch on as well. I don't understand why football where VAR clearly isn't working, and clearly, you look across the world, it's the Premier League, the Bundesliga, Champions League, whatever else, there's different ways of implementing it, and people aren't happy with it. And yes, it's new to the sport, and people say there's going to be teething problems. Well, football's in a bit of a lucky position where they could have looked at other sports where VAR, or some sort of video technology, has had a positive impact and worked. And there's two in particular that that really stand out to me that why they wouldn't look at them. First one is American football, but more importantly is hockey, field hockey, which is essentially football, but with sticks. It's what it is. There's a goal, you put the ball in the goal, but instead of kicking it or headering it, you you hit it or flick it or push it, right? 11, 11 aside, pretty much the same dimensions of a pitch. It's the same game. And hockey has very successfully brought in technology to eradicate the really poor decisions that are being made by officials, which is what we want from technology. We don't want it dictating the game. We don't want it controlling the game. And the way they do that is they have a referral system. They have a referral system. Each team gets one incorrect referral throughout the game, which the captain can administer. They go up to the umpires and they say, look, that didn't hit my player's foot, or that did hit an opposition foot. I want a penalty corner. Look, that was a dangerous swing of the stick. It's a foul. The goal shouldn't count. Apart from that, the game flows naturally. It's not dictated by technology. It's not looking at every little thing. It's not looking at if a slight toe is offline or what have you. It is dictated to by removing the egregious decisions that officials make. And officials know they make them. Officials want this. They want support. But what they don't want is to have their legs cut off from underneath them and have technology take over. And why football can't look at other sports and go, this is a success. Let's try and emulate that. I, I don't understand. We're sick of a goal going in and they're having to be a pause and they're having to go back two or three plays or whatever else to see if there is a foul. Guess what? If there, if there has been, and no one's appealed for it, and no one's, you know, and the opposition is, is hugely upset about it, get on with it. Don't go looking for things and trying to create things and make fouls be more relevant. Let the game flow. Yes, we're all used to when egregious decisions happen as fans, as spectators, as sports lovers, we find that infuriating. And that's what we're trying to take out. And the people who have the best understanding for that are the players themselves or the coaches who are at ground level, like in American football. In American football, if there's an egregious foul, you can coach can throw the yellow flag and it gets looked at. And all of a sudden, you let the game flow. You let the game happen. You let in, foot, in hockey, if you know it's hit an opponent's foot and it's not been given and you get a whole opportunity to get a penalty corner, which are massively stacks in your favour to allow you to score a goals in an attacking team, 
You ask for that and you get your review. If you're wrong, you lose it. So you've got to be tactical about it. You've got, you can't just for every little foul that takes place think, I'm going to review that. I'm going to review that because you get one wrong, you lose it. Uh, and, uh, and maybe you could have one in each half. I don't know. But let the game take place. Give the referees the power back to not worry about things, not let technology take over. Because otherwise, we might as well just have an AI robot sitting at the top of a stand administering the officiating of a game. And we don't want that. We want human elements. We want human interaction. We want human emotion. We want that to be part of it. So why football feels that it needs to go and try and implement it and no other way that any other sport is implementing it blows my mind. Look at other sports. Have a strength of character to say, we are going to see what works elsewhere because we're too late to the party in bringing technology in. I actually have that. And to my mind, there's been no discussion of a referral system. Why has this not been discussed? Why has it not been tabled? Why is it they have to do it differently? I, I just don't get it. I think, I mean, first of all, I wholeheartedly agree in the fact that I like VAR and football as a concept and I like the concept of using technology, but the current system isn't working. And I do think in reality, referral system is a system that is most likely going to work because that's the system that has worked most often in other sports. I guess part of the problem with football is compared to hockey is, is my understanding. Now I'm not, I've watched a fair bit of hockey, but I'm not a massive avid hockey fan is that hockey, I guess more so than football the vital action happens in the goal mouth or within the D because you've got to be within the D to score. Where you said that you don't want to look at free kicks in the middle of the pitch that might lead to a goal. But actually, if that free kick in the middle of the pitch does give them the opportunity to put in the box and then score a goal, that is a really big decision over something that would potentially be something that was quite small and not worth referring at the time. Or would be like a 50-50 thing that the referral might not come into, etc. So it it is slightly more awkward in things like that. And I think that that then is something you then have to consider, but or potentially just say that is part and parcel of it, which is potentially something you do say. Um, but the other thing I don't get is that how, and and this is a question and something I don't know have the answer to, is how rugby is the one sport that doesn't have a referral system, but still uses technology very successfully. It's very rare that the technology in rugby proves to to be wrong. It's I guess it's maybe a referral system from the referee rather than from, I guess, whether that differs to VAR, because it's a VAR external panel that puts it forward. But actually, the referee in rugby has the right to refer it themselves as they're not sure. So maybe that is where that is different. But I don't see how they can use that so successfully, but football just can't. I don't understand it. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree that definitely change needs to be made. And I want to use the technology, but I want to use it the best I can. And I think a referral system is probably going to be the best best system to do that. Whenever you've talked about a referral system before, I've, I have agreed with the concept. I think it is a good idea. I said it puts it back onto the players and it allows them to to make the decision to take responsibility. And if you use your referrals badly, that you've only got yourself to blame for that. Uh, yeah. And you know, to go back to your point, if you're a team that knows you don't defend balls into the box very well. You're not a good team of, of headering the ball or, or, or don't have a huge amount of height in your team. You might decide a free kick just inside your own half, which gives them an opportunity to, to punt the ball into the box, is a weakness of yours, So, and you didn't think it was a foul. But, but by that very nature, you, you are then having to take some ownership on yourself. Because if the ball is then kicked into the box and then a header is scored... 
then that is again you have an opportunity yeah. as the team you have an opportunity to, to clear that ball you yeah. to head that ball away that's a really good point to be fair that is a good point because even though it's a free kick that the park maybe shouldn't have been you still have a team are set up to defend that rather than an offside goal which you then have nothing no control over so that's a good point yeah so and and on your rugby point I think you're probably right that it's maybe that 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 process, rather than being controlled by the captain of a team or by the coach of a team, is controlled by the referee themselves. If they're not sure about something, they can ask for it to be looked at while while the game goes on. Um, I also I think you look at something like rugby; it, it's much more structured. Yeah. You know, as much, there's much there's definite patterns of play. It's not as much of a, a flow to it as say other team sports like a football or a hockey or even a basketball or something. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the past problem with football is this external panel that kind of flag in when they think something, it just t- which actually just removes all the people that are in the game, and it's just this kind of weird, like external body that nobody really trusts and don't seem to be able to get anything right. Well, as I say, it probably won't be the last time we talk about VAR. Thank you, Roy, for letting me have my rant. You've you, <laughs> you've, you've had to listen to me me go on about it before. As ever, there's a lot more that goes on in the world of sport than we've talked about, so a bit of a roundup of what we've missed. The Utility Players Weekly Roundup. At the RBC Heritage on the PGA Tour this week at Harbour Town, Webb Simpson shot 7 under on the last day to post a winning score of 22 under. Andy Murray will return to tennis for the first time in seven months as he takes on Liam Brody in the opening day of the Battle of the Brits. Let's hope for everyone in Andy's team that his body can keep it together this time. In Spanish football, Real Madrid take advantage of Barcelona slipping up against Seville. They won 2-1 on Sunday against Sociedad to go top of the table. And in the Super Rugby in New Zealand, the Blues carried on the 100% records to go top of the table. And Bowden Barrett starred for his new club, making it into the team of the week. In the Champions League, there has been a schedule put in place for it to resume on the 7th of August. All the quarterfinals, semi-finals and finals will be taking place in Portugal in single knockout games. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if Manchester City can finally get over that hurdle. We're really delighted to welcome our second guest this week. We've got Amy Sathiswaite, New Zealand cricketer, has 218 caps for the White Ferns. She is the third highest run scorer in both ODI and T20 cricket for the White Ferns. Uh, she has 19 caps as captain. Uh, and is only one of two players to ever scored four consecutive centuries in ODI cricket, a record she shares with Kumar Sangakara, and was also the 2017 ICC Women Cricketer of the Year for batting. So, Amy, thank you so much for coming on and joining us. No worries. Thanks for having me. Is there any of those you know, remarkable stats to your career so far that you're most proud of? Well, that just make me sound quite old, to be honest. But um, <laughs> oh, look, I think probably the, the four centuries in a row was a pretty special one. Um, at the time, you didn't sort of realise probably, I guess, what I'd achieved to a certain extent. But, um, yeah, looking back, it was a pretty pretty special achievement and, and something that I'll sort of treasure forever, I guess. And for someone who is always trying to do whatever I can to find a little bit of form with my batting, would you have any hints for someone to kind of the mindset you were in at that time or kind of anything particular you were doing in training or anything you were working on that kind of got you in that zone to score such a volume of runs in a period of time? Yeah, it's a, a really interesting one. I've been asked that question a few times. And I think, um, <laughs> if I had that answer, I'd probably be a millionaire by now. But yeah, um, I think so. to be honest, I, I was hitting a lot of balls and I actually played a bit of indoor cricket um, sort of through the winter before the, the summer. And I think that probably just helped me in a roundabout way hit the ball really late, um, which was something that I 
uh, can struggle with at times. And yeah, I think just between that and probably relaxing, I know it sounds really cliched, but um, sort of trying to forget about the, you know, when I was playing domestic cricket, I was trying to forget about the selectors and just be really confident in my game plans and, and how I was going about my cricket and that. And I think it then just flowed into to the rest of my game and, and certainly um, helped me play with a bit of freedom and you know, that always helps, doesn't it, when you're not so tense, I think. Well, I think I think uh, I could certainly uh, be asking you for tips on that. Um, I, I've just uh, been looking at your, your quick info. I think uh, you need to have a word with them to update your, your playing role. It, it says top order batter, but what another record of yours that you have is having the best figures for the White Ferns with the ball in hand in T20s, taking 6 for 17. Why are you not deemed as an all-rounder? Because that was probably about 13 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's probably expired by now. Um, yeah, that, to be honest, is another very surreal day that I sometimes forget even happened. Um, I think it was the first time I'd ever bowled for New Zealand, which is, um, I don't even know how it happened. It was a real blur, to be honest. But, um, yeah, something that I guess was pretty special as well. But, yeah, I might have to send them a bit of a note and tell them to update their, their status. As I was about to say, so you know, as, as captain as well, I'm surprised you don't, you don't think back to that, you know, and, and go, well, if no one else can do it, I'm going to give myself a wee crack again. <laughs> I think I'm getting too old, so I think I'll just um, put myself in the, the easiest fielding position. And, yeah, yeah. That, that sounds very sensible. So obviously it's been a very crazy and exciting uh, few months in 2020 for you and you've taken a little bit of time away from the game to start a family and massive congratulations on welcoming your new baby at the start of the year. Just wondering how the last few months have been with you. Has it been a bit of a mental time, lots of like sleepless nights or have you kind of transitioned into family life pretty well? Uh, a little bit of both. There's certainly a lot of sleepless nights and um, only just starting to, to get a little bit more sleep in the, the last wee while but it's um, been coupled with actually going back to training pretty much full time um, so I, I'm not sure what I'm feeling more tired from the, the lack of sleep or the training but oh look the, the parenting side of things has been awesome um, Grace is sort of a beautiful wee girl and she's giving us lots of joy and, and keeping us on our toes as well so we're, we're loving that side of it um, but yeah being back training as well and so trying to get that, that balance and not feeling sort of too upset when I'm leaving her to go off to training it's a bit of a, a weird feeling but it's been enjoyable actually to get back as well. Yeah I can imagine that's been quite difficult and how's that been transitioning back into cricket again having spent a considerable length of time away from the game um to be honest so far probably slightly easier than I thought I certainly know when I had my first hit as well I was quite worried how that was going to go and whether I'd feel like I'd completely lost it um, and thankfully that hasn't quite been the case it's certainly there's a little bit of rust there that you sort of you know blowing the cobwebs off but I, thankfully I can still remember how to hit it um, not too bad so yeah it's been been really enjoyable to get back into things the sort of the, the running and the lifting weights is probably slightly less enjoyable <laughs> than the hitting balls, but uh, no, it's all, all good fun and, and nice to be back with a couple of the girls as well, training. And obviously your your aim was to, to uh, try and get back in contention and uh, involved for the Women's T20 World Cup at the start of 2021. Uh, obviously you had to miss out on the 50-over World Cup earlier this year. How difficult was it sitting on the sidelines, uh, you know, watching that tournament, you know, despite the fact, you know, you had such an exciting chapter, you know, new chapter in your life coming up. Uh, how difficult was it sitting watching and, and having to be a spectator? Yeah, it was quite um, sort of a different challenge, I guess, for me. I've not really missed too many tours or, or really had massive injuries or anything to have to miss um, games as well. So it was certainly a, a different perspective watching from the sidelines and, and not really feeling like you could sort of do anything about it. But yeah, it probably made me sit back and I guess take it in in a different way as well and um, appreciate a few things from, yeah, like I say, a different perspective. But um, it certainly 
on the on the other hand kind of reinforce that I do want to get back there and, and try and be a part of it if I can and that sort of love for it hasn't gone just yet yeah and in terms of sitting back and watching the games on telly which is something or watching from the stands which is something that you might not have done for a long time having been involved in the team do you learn anything different from watching the game from that perspective do you pick up on things that you wouldn't necessarily pick up on when you're actually in the kind of heat of battle yourself well, a little bit I think everyone you know, whether you're sort of involved in it or, or watching, you always have a, a different perspective. And, and to be honest, probably from watching, you kind of just gain an appreciation of it's always easier from the sideline. Um, I think that's one of the biggest things is it's easy to sit there and kind of judge or, or comment on how things are going or not going. And whereas when you're in the heat of it, it's it's sometimes really hard to kind of sort of almost remove yourself or sit back and try, try and take a moment to, to really absorb what's happening and, and think about what you could be doing um, I think you get so wrapped up in the situation and, and the pressure that it can sometimes probably distract you so maybe it's probably a, a sort of a bit of a, a learning um, if you want to call it that that when you're in the game and you're in sort of the thick of it to try and where you can kind of take those moments and sort of step back and, and really try and think about what's going on yeah I'm sure and just on the 2021 World Cup which you're now training towards which is being held in New Zealand how big is that going to be for the women's game within the country, having the showpiece event in your backyard and kind of all the attention and glamour that comes with that? Because I certainly noticed when England held the Women's World Cup a few years back, it certainly did a massive job for raising the profile of the game here in the UK. I'm just wondering how important that's going to be for the game in New Zealand in 2021. Oh, I think it's going to be huge. I think, um, like you said, the the way that the profile kind of lifted for the, the England women's team um, when they hosted it in 2017 and, and even the T20 World Cup um, earlier this year for the for the Aussie women, even their profile was, was pretty big already, but the way that it went to sort of another level, I think, having hosted that World Cup, yeah, you kind of can't underestimate the, I guess, the power that it has having it at your in your home country. And obviously there's all different elements that come with it as well around probably the pressure of it being at home. But you know, I think certainly it'll it'll be a massive thing for, for women's cricket in this country and kind of putting it on the map a little bit. The way that the profile of the game's just grown uh, in the last few years sort of around the world has, has been amazing to kind of be a part of and amazing to sort of um, see it unfold. And I think you could have almost asked for a better time to kind of host a World Cup and sort of almost jump on that train a little bit and um, make the most of it. Yeah, I mean, we saw what, 86,000 people in attendance for the for the final with Katy Perry, uh, you know, playing uh, a concert as well at the MCG uh, earlier this year, you know. So the way women's cricket is going, it's it's a massive growing sport globally, which is, which is fantastic to see. And it's something that New Zealand cricket recognised in 2019. They obviously had a new MOU uh, agreed between the Players Association and New Zealand cricket. Um, you were obviously the first person to make use of the, the new scheme around maternity and, and your wages being covered. But also, you know, another big part of it was just the overall money that was, was put into the game. An increase, I think, from $1.3 million to $4 million. An increase of 15 contracted women's players to up to 79. So, you know, that was 2019. 2020 has obviously been a bit of a rough start with COVID and everything and and I, I know it's out of season over there for you at the moment but so far what changes has that influx of money and influx of focus had on the women's game and, and where do you hope to see it go? Yeah it's definitely been a, a huge investment probably first and foremost from a white fans perspective just allowing players to sort of be more professional and, and full-time with their cricket and um, you know we had a lot of players that were either working pretty full-time or, or studying quite intensively and 
for them to be able to scale that back or fully focus on cricket has been huge. Um, we saw the likes of Maddie Green who went over and played in the Women's Big Bash and um, just the way that that you know, positively impacted her game and took it to another level was, was huge. And I think that's kind of the sort of thing we'll continue to see um, as players are able to you know, spend more and more time focusing on their game and, and solely on cricket. And aside from that, there's been the sort of investment at the, the next level. We've had development contracts for, I think, eight girls. And um, they're kind of the next crop or that sort of younger crop that are coming through that um, they've been able to invest in. And I think that's a massive part for us moving forward. Um, just means that when they then get to that white friends level, they've, they've kind of had that introduction a little bit. We've seen girls in the past that have got to the white friends level and, and then they haven't done a huge amount of, might have even just been strength testing and those sorts of things that they've then had to learn as they've already, you know, when they've got to the environment. So to expose them at a younger age is, is going to be hugely beneficial for us. And um, and then the domestic side of things, the, the girls have had a little bit of sort of reimbursement, I guess, at that level for, for what they're doing. And I do think it's helping to keep players in the game, which is only going to help our, our depth and um, continue to be sort of a good thing for us in that respect. Yeah, and, and you know, you're obviously uh, one of the more senior members in and around the New Zealand women's setup. And you said the improvements of, of keeping girls and women in the game and, and not having to sort of work part-time. You know, when contracts first came in, I believe, you know, you were offered one and and chose to stay and work and it just shows the differences that have been made now. You know, what was that time like when sort of contracts coming out and you were offered your first contract and, and you decided to stay, you know, working part-time and, and continuing to do cricket alongside it? Yeah, it just shows, I guess, firstly, how far the, you know, the landscape has changed and um, it's awesome that you almost don't have to, I guess, sit there and kind of make a decision around which way it's going to be when you do get offered something they're at a point now that I think when you get offered it you you can then choose to you know fully um, invest in your cricket and back then it, it was um, yeah I guess trying to decide between the two and financially it just wasn't quite enough to justify probably leaving um, the job that I was in at the time and looking back I think I spent sort of seven years of full-time work and um, training you know early morning and, and late evenings and fitting it all around um, work so it was pretty pretty full-on and I think just the pleasing thing for me is that girls in a way now don't have to I guess make that decision and like I say you know put so much more time and, and effort into their their cricket and um, I think that's just going to mean that all the players are going to kind of jump forward and, and leaps and bounds and be able to fast track probably their game quicker than, than when you're having to balance um, the two so yeah it was a tough decision at the time um, but just like I said financially it, I couldn't quite justify it then but then thankfully I guess the game continued to evolve and I got opportunities around the globe to play in the, the Kia Super League and the Women's Big Bash and, and through that it meant that I could quit my full-time job and, and really just invest in my cricket which was an exciting new sort of chapter. And talking about that time when you said you were working full-time and then you were also playing international cricket on the side, do you find that comparing then to comparing now when you can focus solely on cricket you had a different kind of enjoyment or sort of love or just your attitude towards the game was different because I can imagine having to juggle all the pressures and stresses of having a full-time job and then the pressures and stress of playing international sport at the same time can put a lot of strain on both those things and actually can potentially affect how you enjoy either one or both. So do you think that you potentially enjoy the game now or maybe don't enjoy the game so much now that you can do it full-time? Oh, definitely. I think um, you sort of hit the nail on the head that you can't really give either of them 100% and it probably at times then just became slightly frustrating in that sense that you, you didn't feel like you'd reached your potential probably in either avenue and to think, you know, 
how good a player could have I been um, with cricket if I could go full time and was always probably a question that was sitting slightly in the back of your mind and you know you're giving it a hundred percent that you can given the situation I guess but you know that you probably could give more if you could you know give it a hundred percent of your time um, and I think that was certainly something that I found that changed is once I got the ability to to pull back from work and, and give more to my cricket I was able to see I guess the growth in my game and um, the way that I was able to play which was certainly an exciting aspect and from that sense certainly made you enjoy it a lot more and because you're able to you know, I guess expand your game and enjoy how you were able to play and then it, it brought different challenges in the way that you had to then balance your life and I think through working and playing it naturally brought that balance and it meant that you could kind of escape cricket when it um, you know, wasn't going so well or you had something that gave you that balance and, and once you were then full-time cricket you had to really learn how to balance life and, and not be you know so sort of I guess engulfed in, in cricket that you felt like you were drowning in it a little bit and then didn't enjoy it so it's been a massive kind of learning curve and, and journey over that time where I've, I've changed from yeah I guess how much I was doing of, of work in cricket and then, and then going into full-time cricket. Yeah as you mentioned earlier you know a big change in the women's game was was moving more towards the opportunity for, for women to, to travel globally and play in different tournaments around the world like we're seeing more and more on the men's side of the game uh, with T20 leagues and and other opportunities popping up. Yourself you've you've had the opportunity to play over in the Super League in England playing for Lancashire Thunder you've played in the Women's Big Bash League both for Hobart and Melbourne. Is there a favourite tournament? Is there a favourite place? Is there a favourite thing you've been involved with as, as the game grows more globally in the women's side? Oh, that's a pretty challenging question, I think, to be honest. Um, I think they've all brought different sort of aspects that I've really enjoyed. And I think, if I'm honest, the opportunity to have played in these leagues has probably extended my career and just, and also kind of not necessarily rekindled, but certainly grown my love of the game. And just meeting the people that I've met around the world um, has been awesome. And I've created some really you know, amazing lifelong sort of friendships through doing that and um, had a lot of fun. And I think the Women's Big Bash is probably right up there as one of the best tournaments in the world in terms of the standard and the way that it's run. Um, and the Kia Super League, to be honest, isn't too far behind. But like I say, probably the friendships and um, the camaraderie that I've, I've sort of gained through being able to go and play in those leagues and, and even just you know picking other people's brains and, and seeing how other players sort of go about their game. Uh, I think I've, I've learned a lot from that and just had a lot of fun doing it. So yeah, it's been a great opportunity. So the one that didn't go ahead this year in England uh, and, and you wouldn't have been available for uh, anyway was, was the 100. Unfortunately, COVID got the better of that and, and it's been pushed back by 12 months. You know, if you find yourself an opportunity to get involved next year, what do you think of the new format that the ECB has put forward with this, this 100 ball tournament? You know, T20 seems to be so popular. What's your take on sort of making the changes they're looking to make in that? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think um, you can start to to ask, you know, do we need another format um, but then at the same time it also brings to something a little bit different and if it means that you can get into new windows of, of television and that sort of things as well then getting those wider audiences is always going to be a, a real positive um, it would whenever there is a, a new format like that that pops up you start to think oh, and I'd love to have a go just to see what it is like how different is it and you know what does it feel like to play um, so I'm sure it would throw up a few different challenges like kind of T20 cricket did when it first came on the scene. But yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how it kind of unfolds when it does get the opportunity to go ahead. 
Yeah, I think I think going back to the start when we talked about you fancy having more of a bowl. I think as as less and less balls are actually being bowled, I think you, you, you're right sticking to your batting. Uh, any bowlers out there is, are not going to be enjoying the fact they have to bowl less balls, which probably go further distance. Well, also when you get told that you're going to bowl ten balls in a row, I think that's one of the rules that, that you can do. Then after that sixth ball, if it goes out of the park, you might start to think, oh, I'd quite like to to um, hand the ball over to someone else. And and just. You mentioned there that kind of different format of different bowlers, as well as kind of putting up different challenges for players, that's going to put up different challenges for captains as well, how they kind of manage their bowlers and how they potentially manage their fields with different fielding restrictions. As someone who is an international captain, do you think that's going to be really difficult for captains to adapt to this new format? Yeah, I think it's just going to create, like I say, a different challenge. And I think that's the beauty of cricket in a way is everyone goes about it in a slightly different way and, and everyone has a different thought process of how they kind of approach things and um, I'm sure this will be you no know, different and there'll be that kind of teething period, if you like, while people kind of find their feet and, and work out, you know, how different is it, how um, does it change sort of tactically if it, if it does and I know T20 cricket's brought in a lot of innovation, especially in the women's game of late and you've had to then really think how you kind of counteract that from a bowling perspective and you know your field sets and, and that sort of thing so I'm sure it'll throw up a few challenges and it'll be interesting to see what those are. Excellent well I think we're all excited to see how that, that's taken and we're also excited hopefully to see you back on the park uh, at the beginning next year uh, and hopefully COVID uh, plays its part and we can have that Women's World Cup uh, start 2021 uh, you know in front of packed houses across the New Zealand and and make it the spectacle that we've, we've come to love over the last number of Women's World Cups. Uh, so, Amy, we, we finish with our every guest where we put them through a, a gauntlet of uh, 45 seconds of questions. Okay, so um, I hope you're sort of ready to be, to be throwing out qu- quick-fire questions here and uh, just a good opportunity to get more on the insight of what Amy Sathaway is about. Yeah, we'll see how we go. Okay, all right. Well, uh, Rory, if you want to queue up the music, queue up the time, we'll put 45 seconds on the clock. There's no time to run the gauntlet. Crisps or popcorn? popcorn heads or tails heads is jedi a legitimate religion oh no <laughs> uh starter or dessert dessert definitely jurassic park could it happen mm, no superman or batman neither didn't answer <laughs> yeah absolutely uh was the moon landing real no. Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Beatles. Lager or ale? Neither. Boring, too hot sorry. or too cold? Too hot. How was that? Oh. That was actually pretty good, to be honest. Not too bad. <laughs> the, the moon landing didn't happen. I mean, this is a safe space, so we're not going to judge, but that is definitely a controversial answer. Yeah, it really is. I thought I'd just mix it up just to <laughs> make it exciting. I like it. I like it. And and not not a not a, a superhero fan either. Not a big one, no. Yeah, some people would be very disappointed in that. Um, I watch a few movies, but I haven't sort of indulged in too many of those. I can relate to that. I'm, I've never got into superhero movies myself, so I can definitely relate to that. Yeah, and so heads or tails? What was your answer there? I think I said heads, but. <laughs> Is that something yeah, you stick by? A, no, it's definitely a, just in the moment. I'll just chuck one out there. I try not to get too hung up on it. Although in saying that the New Zealand captain record in general, and that's men's and women's, is pretty shocking when it comes to tosses. Well, surely you, you stick with one and it must. It's actually, the law of averages is 50-50. It will turn your way at some point. 
Well, Susie Bates tried that logic and it failed miserably. I'm pretty sure she stuck with one and it just, I think she lost probably six in a row and it still didn't work. Oh, I, I, think, I think sometimes your teammates get more hung up with what you called than you do yourself. So that can be a difficult Absolutely. one as well. Absolutely. They but, certainly hype it up, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, Amy, thank you for your time. Really excellent to have you on. We really appreciate it. And, um, you know, congratulations once again on the start of the family for, for you and Leah. And uh, um, so hopefully we'll see you in, in, in 2021, uh, you know, for that home world cup uh for you for you over in new zealand no worries thanks for having me it was a lot of fun thanks Thanks once again amy for joining us rory some really really interesting insight coming from amy yeah really fascinating seeing the kind of process that she's gone through over the past few months take time away and then coming back into training and actually great to hear that she's hitting the ball pretty well she was worried about that i can understand that whenever i take time away from cricket i'm always worried about how i'm going to hit the ball when i come back but yeah, she sounds like she's hitting it great and it'll be really great to see her in that World Cup in 2021. Hopefully that will go ahead. We talked about early in the programme about the return to international sport and hopefully by 2021, especially how New Zealand are in a good place with the virus right now, that that will go ahead because it'll be such a fantastic spectacle. And I think Amy's right. I think it'll be amazing for the country. We've seen how the game grew, the women's game grew in England and the UK when they held that World Cup back in 2017. So Really looking forward to that. And I said, hopefully Amy's back hitting the ball well and I'm sure, sure she'll score loads of runs if she is. What stood out to me as well is is the sacrifices she had to make in terms of balancing a, a career to make ends meet for, for away from away from cricket. As, as sport gets more professional around the world, uh, as women's sport goes on that rapid learning catch-up curve with the men's sport as it gets more professional across a lot of sports, which is so great to see, we forget there are still athletes out there who have to juggle a career away from sport to make ends meet and, and having to make that decision and still be as successful as she was and be a bit of a pioneer to allow, to show that yes, there were strides being made, but they weren't good enough and, and that she had to had to put food on the table and to be as successful as, successful as she still was, was great. And, and, and all credit to where the, the game of cricket is going and credit to New Zealand cricket. There are a place now where women and girls don't have to make that decision. And and the journey that, that she's been on has sort of shown that, that the benefits as, as that hard work pays off. So I think just hearing the sort of evolution of her career was, was really cool to hear. Yeah, for sure. I, can't, I actually didn't appreciate that she had balanced work and cricket for so long. And she has all these amazing records, all these amazing stats. And doing that while holding down a full-time job, I think one shows how the progression we've had in the women's game has certainly been needed and hopefully that progression continues over the years to come and also just credit to her for being able to do that and being able to be so successful and as you said being that pioneer that then helped the game grow within New Zealand and also around the world. So as we do each week we'll be finishing the show with our top threes I think thank you for all those who voted on on Twitter and Instagram last week I think it's safe to say Rory in terms of our top three sporting moments I got well and truly battered by you if our, <laughs> if our listeners to be believed I think we have to get some new listeners for the sounds of it <laughs> I'm feeling very smug I'm not going to lie I mean, you can tell by the look on your face and um, so a little bit of a change this week so we're going to go to our top three sport all-time sporting coaches or managers um as you can imagine, there's, there's been some fantastic managers and coaches over the years. Uh, so it's been very difficult to whittle down. I'm sure we'll have missed out on plenty and you'll be letting us know about that. But as uh, as I had to change a couple of my answers last week, Roy, I am going to go first this week with my top three. Uh, so that's fine, no, yeah. yeah. And no doubt you'll try and steal mine. But 
first of all, in third place, uh, I'm going to go for Butch Harmon. I almost put in Butch Harmon. Oh, of, course, of course you did. <laughs> I, but I, I didn't. Did. I didn't know whether I was putting him in because he's. I've seen him as a pundit and talk a lot about coaching, or whether I didn't know enough about him actually as a coach to know whether he was a worthwhile choice as a coach or whether he's just a good pundit. And I've been kind of manipulated by Sky. Well, I, I think a, a younger generation of golf fans will obviously know Butch much more clearly for his for his work in, in media in Sky as a pundit and things like that. But just let me listen to some of these names. So Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, Ernie Els, Dustin Johnson, Greg Norman. I mean, this is just some of the few players that Butch has had an incredible effect on their career. I think he was Tiger Woods' first ever coach. And in that time, you know, he went from the sensation we saw in the US amateur tour and the US amateur game moving into the professional game. They had to move different directions after that. But I think that the initial credit that Tiger Woods had, you know, couldn't have been done without, without Butcher's support. I think before that, Greg Norman, sort of people don't realise what an effect the Shark had with Butch Harmon and, and Butch Harmon's work. And, and, you know, I've just sort of given the, the sort of the top of the tree there. But even the other players who worked in the game, I read a really interesting article in, which came out in 2014 on Butch Harmon um, talking about Jimmy Walker. So this was in 2004. It's a little bit dated, but just to give sort of, I don't think people realise the effect that Butch has on, on the game of golf, is that Jimmy Walker uh, in 2014 brought Butch Harmon on board. And within six months of bringing him in as a, as, as a part of his coaching team, he went from having very few wins on tour performing at all to winning three tournaments in six months. So anyone who follows PGA Tour, to, you know, you win three tournaments in six months. I mean, that's sort of number one in golfer in the world territory. Mm-hmm. You know, if, you try, if you're getting three top tens in six months, you've done well. And, and he credits that to, to Butch coming in. So, yeah, in his latter years, he, he's had to juggle a lot. He's almost got too much in his plates with his golf academies and his media commitments. But to, to actually, if you look at just from the coaching element, the effect he's had in the game, I think it's just such an incredible job. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, won't go as anyone's, uh, won't be surprised to anyone. And is very, in fact, both my second and first one are very difficult for me to say because it's a jealousy element in here. But Sir Alex Ferguson is just what he did with Manchester United through his time there. It was, I think it was 38 trophies overall, 13 Premier Leagues, five FA Cups two Champions League, there was a World Club Championship in there. Just the tenure that he had, the, the, the success year after year after year. And what the way I loved the way he would manage teams is that he wouldn't get he wouldn't get caught up in the emotions of getting sentimental with players. He had that ability to build a team and move on from players with everyone to the exception of Ryan Giggs. <laughs> you know, a year earlier than needed to a lot of managers a lot of coaches a lot of people they get attached and how many times do we sort of see people dwindle out their careers and 
and slide away into obscurity or, or, or sort of slide away from, from their abilities and, and they're just a sentimental element hold on to me. He didn't do that. He knew when it was time to let go. He knew when it was time to new blood. He was able to evolve with how the game of football changed over his time. So Alex Ferguson, although he was a Manchester United, is just uh, an absolute you know, stall. Uh, it's just a, a no-brainer to get yeah. my top three. And my number one is... Um, and it's hard to beat Sir Alex Ferguson, but for me, is anyone who follows American football will know Bill Belichick with the New England Patriots. In a sport which is set up through its team building process of going through the college system and you draft players and players are then tied into certain length of contracts and you trade to get the players and you trade picks and you trade players and you draft players and there's no money changing hands like in football where if you get to the if you to be the best player in the premier league or you become the best player in la liga you know the money and the financial side of the game that you gain from that you can then go and buy the best players and then you can just keep buying the best players and buying the best players. How, how, I mean, we've seen it with City. We've seen it at Chelsea previously. You know, we're starting to see it in other pockets of the world. American football, you can't do that. You can't buy players. You cannot go to a club and say, I'm going to buy your best players. Here is a ridiculous amount of money. Every club in American football, every franchise has the same salary cap, has the same financial structure. There is parity in that side of the game. So, and if you win the Super Bowl, Next year, you get the last pick of the players available. So the whole system is set up so there is a level playing field so that not one franchise can dominate. But guess what? One franchise did. And that, to my mind, is all down to the coaching of Bill Belichick. He has got the Patriots to 17 playoffs in 20 years. He's got six Super Bowls. Had 11 play- he's gone to 11 playoffs in a row. Even if you look back to what the Dolphins and the 49ers and other Cowboys franchises have done previously, no one comes close to that. People who are more knowledgeable about American football than me will say people like Don Shula and other coaches, Vince Lombardi, potentially have had a bigger effect and what have you. But what Bill Belichick has done is just, just, I don't think it'll ever be matched. As I say, in a sport which sole purpose in the way it's set up is to try and add parity and stop any particular team having dominance. Yeah, I think that's a very convincing set of top threes. And I have one of the same. I wasn't, actually, I'm, I've only just decided my order. I couldn't quite work out my order. But in number three, I'm going to take it actually back, back in time to the 70s and to the Nottingham Forest team that won the European Championship twice. And of course, that means that I'm having Brian Clough as my third best coach of all time. I don't know whether this is me being sentimental, having lived in Nottingham for the past four years, but what I've only just realised is that when Brian Clough took over, Nottingham Forest were in Division 2. They were in the Championship. They weren't in the top division of English football. And within two years, they won the Champions League. That is, no, I know it, it was a different time and money was different and you wouldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't do that now. I appreciate you couldn't do that now because of the financial structure and the ways the game set up. But to turn around a team that quickly to then win the Premier League the first year they got promoted and then win the Champions League and not do it once, but do it twice. All from him coming in just, I think, is 
I think it's an underrated achievement. I think people talk about Brian Clough and talk about how great he was, but they don't actually appreciate the kind of nature of that result. So I think for me, certainly Brian Clough has to be in there and in that conversation. Number two, I agree with everything you said about Alex Ferguson. I think you couldn't have this list without having Alex Ferguson in there. I didn't really want to have two football managers, but I think that, again, I think Alex Ferguson is, I mean, you said it all, just amazing. And to do it for that long, for such an extended period of time, with all the players he managed and as the game changed, is just, I think, phenomenal. And now my number one, I think my number one is someone that has certainly only become kind of realised in the past year, and maybe a lot of people wouldn't have heard of. My number one is John Blackie. Now, for those who don't know, John Blackie is Dina Asher-Smith's sprint coach. Dina Asher-Smith is the British sprinter. She became the first ever British woman to win a sprint gold at the World Championships last year in 2019. And she got a silver, that was in the 200 metres, and she got a silver in the 100 metres as well. And now, obviously a fantastic achievement when Britain traditionally as a nation aren't as good as sprinting as a lot of our kind of Olympic rivals and etc. But John Blackie has coached Dina since she first started running, since she was 10 years old. And I can't think of any sporting success story, sport of icon. I'm probably wrong here. I'm sure you or someone will tell me that there is someone, but I can't think of a sporting athlete that's achieved what Dina has and had one coach her whole life. One coach who took her as a volunteer coach and took her through her whole career. In those days, did she move, did she get a new coach? Did she get someone in? Did she, obviously she would have done stuff with Team GB and there would have been other people that worked with her, but she still had that one coach, John Blackie, that took her through her whole career and took her eventually to the top of the game. And it's like, this just amazing success story for volunteer coaches and actually shows that if you are dedicated enough and if you are knowledgeable enough, you can take someone through their career and you can take someone to be world champion and especially in a sport where Britain wouldn't expect it to be producing world champions and sprinting. So I just think it's such an amazing story and I think he is someone that needs to really be commended and rewarded and everything you see about him is that he's so humble, he's so kind of he just wants to be away from the line at line limelight. He wants to stay behind the scenes, let Dina take all the all the plaudits. And I actually think that we really need to celebrate someone's commitment to support, commitment to the person and just taking someone to such an amazing achievement. I, I well said. Uh, and I have to say I have to be honest, until you mentioned mentioned him, he's someone I'd never come across. And I think fair play to him. What stands out for me across the lists is longevity, is yeah. is is people who are willing to commit to a team, to an athlete, to a player, whatever it might be. We don't see enough of that in sport anymore, and and it's something we certainly I think I don't want to speak for you, but both of us would love to see more of. We want those iconic figures in our in our teams and in our in our sports that we follow. So so fair play to to them. Well, as we'll stick that out. And a poll as, as we do each week. It'll be interesting to see what you uh, what your thoughts are. Uh, thank you for joining us once again uh, for the utility players. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again next Wednesday and we hope everyone stays safe. Bye.